See this stool right here? I'm going to use it. I don't care what you think. I'm tired. Oh. Um, I have to say on a, on a quick note, well, I, I'm Ian. Good morning. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, what's cool about this, this, this baby dedication just now is, is this is just a testimony to, I mean, we say things like, this is our family, this is the body, this is our community, and, and that can sort of just become a thing that we say. But this was a really cool experience, uh, and it, it really made the, the reality of community and body and family come alive for me, too, because yesterday, I, I've, in, I've invited, I mean, most of you, I think, have heard, you've heard me speak before that my, my, the struggle that my dad has with cancer uh, and some of you know, not all of you do, that he did, he passed away on August 1st. Um, and so the family and I have been dealing with that. We, but we had his memorial service here last night. And I got up here and I, I, I preached a message at my, my own dad's memorial service, which is a really strange thing. But then less than 24 hours later, we're dedicating children. And that's just... I think that's just a beautiful thing to be a part of. And this is, I mean, this is what we do. This is community. This is family. We, we go through these seasons of life together. We get to do that with one another. And if you're, I mean, this is a big crowd of people, but if you're feeling unknown or unseen, um, come say hi, because this is a beautiful, a beautiful thing here. Uh, it's, a, it's a family times a thousand. I mean, look at all these people that we get to do life with. Uh, so I was, just, I was just thinking about as I was coming up here um, with those children. Um, so if you, I can get to the message now. If you have a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to the Gospel of John. Those of you who know about Redbird, the evening service that we have here, we've been going through the Gospel of John for, goodness, it's been, it's been going on 10 months now. Uh, and Josh is away with his family, and so he, he said, do whatever you want. And I, I was thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I want to go back. I want to go back to the. I want to go back to John one. It's it's been a, it's been almost a year since since I had visited John one, and I didn't do it here. I did it at Redbird, and so I, I thought that I would revisit that. So if you have a Bible, open up to John one, and before we begin, find your places in the pages, and uh, let me open up just with a quick a quick word of prayer as we begin. Uh, again, Lord. We come before you because you are readily available and you are a father who hears us. You are a father who is near. And we thank you for that. Thank you for prayer. Thank you that we can approach you with, with, our, with our hurts, with our needs, with our desires. Lord, I give this message over to you. Um, my mind is a hot mess. The last, the last three weeks, the last 24 hours have been emotionally draining. And... That's a good thing because I need, to, I need to shut my mouth. I need to be off this stage. I need to be quiet. And we need to hear from you, Lord. We need to hear from your word and your word only. Otherwise, we're wasting our time. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through the words of Scripture uh, on, and the tone of, of my vocal cords. But in other, other ways, I would, I would not be here. Thank you for this group of people, Lord. Thank you that we can come here and we can gather in your name freely. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So just to begin, I thought it would be, I thought it would be cool. I like to do this too. I like to, I like to speak to the mind and I like to preach to the heart. And there's so much in the Bible. There's so much for eternity. There's so much for our hearts. There's so much for our minds that I, I tried to come at the, the Bible balance and, and, and get a little bit of, of everything 
for the purpose of emphasizing the gospel. That is the point, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so to, to dig under the surface and just kind of learn about what we're doing here in the book of John. Where, who is John? What is the gospel of John? I thought we could just take a few minutes and just start with the basics and then move our way forward to, to the beauty of our Lord and our Savior. Simply put, John was one of Jesus' followers, one of his hand-picked, selected followers. Jesus called him and said, come and follow me. John was a fisherman. He was a young guy. He was a fisherman with his older brother, James, who we also hear about in Scripture. They were the sons of a guy named Zebedee, and they were fishermen. They ran a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. And from what we know in Scripture, it was actually quite a successful uh, fishing business because we're told in Mark chapter 1 that when Jesus comes and he calls these brothers, James and John, he says, come and follow me. It says that they dropped their nets immediately. They left their father. They left their nets. And it says that they left the hired hands that they had helping them. So this was a, a business that was successful enough they were able to afford employees, which is not something that everybody was able to do. So John is, the, I mean, you got to think blue-collared fisherman, strong shoulders, big back, probably no neck kind of dude, the traps on his, connected his ears to his shoulder blades, one of these big muscular guys. He was a fisherman. He was business savvy. He was a hard worker. And with that sort of blue-collar sort of maybe brawler type, uh, he was a hot head, and so was his brother James. You might recall in the, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going from the northern region of, of Galilee back into Jerusalem, and he cuts through Samaria. And it says that the people of Samaria told Jesus to shoo. They didn't, they didn't want him around because they knew he was going to Jerusalem, and there was beef between the Israelites and the Samaritan people. And without missing a beat, John turns to Jesus, and he's like, hey, you want us to call fire down from heaven and smoke these dudes just like Elijah did? <laughs> and Jesus is like, hey, dancing Nancy, calm your roll. It's cool. Shut up. We're not going to be doing that. He's a hot, he's a hot head, hot head, fisherman, strong, business savvy, a rough guy. And this is the guy who, who wrote this gospel. Uh, he later went on to actually be known as the apostle of love. He came, into, he came to know Jesus Christ and Jesus changed his heart. And this, this rough, tough, smoke him with fire guy actually went down as being the apostle of love. And, and he became a powerhouse actually for the early church. Him and his brother James and Peter are mentioned in Paul's letter in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says that I, I went to Peter, James, and John who were pillars of the church and the, these guys actually gave approval to Paul's message and agreed that he should go to the Gentiles and preach to them. Uh, something that's special about John is not only was he a part of the inner 12 of Jesus, he wasn't just a part of that group of 12 disciples that followed Jesus throughout the entire course of his public ministry, but he also was one of the inner three. He was one of Jesus' three best friends. Peter, James, and John are mentioned many times as being sort of special to Jesus. They had a, they had a very special, close, intimate relationship. It was those three, it was Peter, James, and our boy John who were invited alone up onto the Mount of Transfiguration in the book of Matthew, chapter 17. And it was also those three who were invited in Mark chapter 5 when Jesus goes into the room where that young, where that young girl has died and he, he calls her back to life. It was those three, Peter, James, and John, that Jesus invited with him. John is, is known throughout the gospel of John as the apostle who Jesus loved. He's the apostle at the upper room who laid his head on Jesus' chest and said, who is it that's going to betray you? 
this, this, is, this is not a hundred years removed from the life of the person of Jesus. This is the account of somebody who was there, who saw Jesus' life and was intimately close with him. Best friends with him, you could say. John wrote the gospel later in life, around 100 AD in Ephesus. Uh, he was the only disciple who wasn't actually martyred, but he was tortured for his faith. He was boiled in a vat of oil, and then he was sent off, uh, banished to the island of Patmos. Um, and then he, he later died an old man in Ephesus. It was in Ephesus that he wrote this gospel and also the, the three epistles. And this gospel that he wrote, the gospel of John, it's, it's different than the synoptics. The synoptic gospels are the first, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those give a synopsis of Jesus' life. There's a lot of information about Jesus' birth, where he came from, the, the town, the area that he lived in, sort of the drama of his early years and, and, and the, some of the, the turmoil that his parents went through. And th that's not completely bereft in the, in the book of John. John does have details like that, but there's no mention of the Christmas story. There's no mention of his baptism. There's no mention of his parables. There's a lot that's missing there. John's main focus and drive is, is putting the spotlight on Jesus as God in the flesh. His main drive is not so much the physical conditions and circumstances of Jesus' life, but highlighting and emphasizing the fact that Jesus is God. John's point is to, is to point out Jesus' deity. That was his, his main thrust. And the, the difference in his gospel writing, a lot of it is, is attributed to the fact that, that he wrote his gospel some decades later, about 30 years after the other three were written. So he's coming at it from a different vantage point, and he's, he's filling in details that, that the other gospels didn't have. And there is a lot in the gospel of John that is not in the other Gospels. John alone points out that Jesus and John the Baptist actually had an overlapping ministry before John was arrested. The, the, the water being turned into wine, chapter 2, that's unique to John. The visit, that powerful visit between Nicodemus and Jesus in chapter 3 is unique to John. The woman at the well where Jesus elevates this, this Samaritan woman and saves her is unique to the Gospel of John. And one of the coolest things... About the, about the book of John, and I'll, I'll, I'll move on after this, uh, is his, his attention to detail. And even, even skeptics admit, they're like, this, this isn't the story of someone who's making things up because he puts in all these little details that aren't really important, but they're there. And it's just this breath of somebody who is recounting things that he actually saw and heard. All four gospel accounts have the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's in all four gospel accounts. But John alone points out that the five loaves that the boy gave to the disciples were barley loaves. Only John makes that, makes that distinction and, and tells us that they were actually barley loaves. In chapter 2, that, the water being turned into wine, John tells us that it was actually six water jars that were filled up that then Jesus turned into wine. The, the miracle of Jesus walking across the water on the Sea of Galilee John tells us that he was in the boat and that they had rowed two or three miles before Jesus came to them. And the last one uh, is near the very, end of the, in the very end of the book, the last miraculous catch of fish that these guys take in after Jesus' resurrection. John says that there was 153 fish. And there's been a lot of debate and theory about what does 153 mean? And as far as we can tell, it doesn't mean anything. It just means that John counted 153 fish. We just, we're overthinking it. It's just a beautiful testament that this is just a guy who's, he was there, he witnessed it, 
He had his hands on Jesus, he was with Jesus, and he's just recounting the things that he saw and heard and experienced. And so this, this is some of the unique personality behind John and his gospel. If you read it closely and, and carefully, these are the things that you'll, that you'll pick out. Included with that is the structure of John. So now getting into some nuts and bolts about the gospel of John. John's gospel is also unique in the way that it's constructed, especially in the beginning of, of the gospel. So Matthew takes the person of Jesus and links him to David through genealogy because he's emphasizing Jesus' connection to the Jews. Mark takes the person of Jesus and connects him to Old Testament prophecy because he's emphasizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Messiah that was to come. Luke takes Jesus and connects him all the way back to Adam through genealogy, emphasizing Jesus' relation to all of people, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, but everyone. John goes even a step further. He begins Jesus' ministry. Jesus is an adult. He's getting, he's getting started in the very first movements of his ministry. But before he does that, he gives us the very first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which are known as, as, as the prologue, which, are, which includes the three verses that we're going to look at this morning. And that takes Jesus past humanity, past Jew, past Gentile, and actually into the place of eternity. And we will get there here in just a couple of minutes. The other thing that John does right off the bat, and we love this, we love this, is he uses very specific language. He's, he starts with the very first words, he starts to break down the barriers to, in, to invite other cultures and other other trains of thought and other concepts of belief. 30 years after Jesus had raised from the dead, Christianity had gone, it had gone out from Jerusalem and it had gone into Asia Minor, Greece, Rome. But the very first believers, we all know, were, were Jewish people. And so the Christian faith was replete with Jewish imagery, Jewish language, Jewish thought, Jewish conceptualization. And so John, right out of the get-go, is actually breaking that down and he's inviting other cultures in. Other, other, other thought patterns, other conceptualizations, people from other belief structures. He's inviting them into the gospel, the story of the gospel. And the way that he does that specifically is with the word, word, the term word. And it's, it's okay, to, it's okay to, to, to say this. What we're going to look at is John chapter 1 verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. That's a weird sentence in English. And it's, it's okay to say that. It is weird. It set me back for a long time. I didn't even, I didn't even venture into it because of, it just seemed enigmatic and strange. But what John's doing is he's using the term word very intentionally because that term was, it was, it was steeped in history and in meaning. And he's going to use this to bridge the gap between different thoughts and different, and different beliefs. So the obvious question is, what is the term word? What does that mean? The New Testament was written in Greek originally, and the, and the term word in Greek is the word logos. You'll hear it pronounced logos or logos. As far as I can tell, all three are correct, depending on who you're sitting in front of. I say logos. The logos is the Greek term for this. And the logos had, was a familiar term between Greek thinkers and the Hebrew thinkers. They both had a concept for that, but it was, it was different, but they both understood the term. To the, to the Jewish thinker, the term term word would have, would have brought into their mind God's word. 
that would have been the most, that would have been the, the most fundamental and first belief that they would have thought of is they would have heard word and they would have gone, that's God's word. They would have gone Old Testament, God's word. All over the Old Testament, we see God's word came to Moses. God word, God's word came to this king. God's word came to that king. This is God's word. They conceptualized and believed God's word to be effective, to be creative, and to be, to, to reveal God. It was, an, it was, his word was effective, it was creative, and it revealed who he is. And so just some verses as we start building up what John's getting at here. In Isaiah 55, we read this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, and it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God's word is effective. It, is, it goes out and it accomplishes the thing that God meant for it to accomplish. And tied right into that is his word is creative. Eight times in the Genesis story, the creation narrative, we, we read, and God said. And God said, let there be. And God said, let there be. And God said, and God spoke. Let there be, let there be light, let there be vegetation, let there be an expanse. Let us create man and woman in our image. God's word accomplishes what it sets out to accomplish. It's effective, it's creative, and it also reveals who he is. It reveals his will, it reveals his instruction, it reveals his command, and it even reveals his character. And this is all over the New Testament. I'm just going to pick this one, this, this one handful of verses here because it, it sort of captures a little bit of all of that. This is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 6. We read this. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So right out, he's telling Moses what to do. And he's putting commandments back on the stone. His, his, his spoken word is commanding his written word. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning onto Mount Sinai and present yourself there to meet me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses did cut the two tablets of stone. God's word is effective. It seeks out to do what it, what it wants to do. And he rose early in the morning and went out to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So again, this is God speaking. He proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So it's just one example of the Lord revealing his will, his commands, and even who he is. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so the, the word to the Hebrew thinker was the revealed word of God, the revealed power of God, his instruction, the revelation of even his person. The Greek understanding is, is different. And actually, before I move on to the Greek, I want to say one more thing about God's word. God's word reveals who he is to us. And this is actually, if you think about it, this is exactly what happens with us. We reveal who we are to each other with our words. We speak 
Anybody who's in any sort of relationship, marriage, dating, friendship, communication is key. We communicate to one another to let each other know who we are. And this breaks down in the human realm because we can lie and we can be, dece- we can be deceivers. We can manipulate people. But God speaks no thing that's untrue. He never speaks contrary to his nature, so he says nothing false. And we can trust everything that he says. And what he speaks and what he reveals is true. It's true to who he is. God's word is God revealed. Now, the Greek concept of logos was a little bit different. They understood the term, but in their minds, it sort of broke down like this. So so their conceptualization of Lagos was the governing force or power that holds the world together. And there was one one guy named Heraclitus in 560 BC. He, He noted that if you look around at the world, the river is always moving. If you put your foot in it, and then you take your foot out of it, and then you put your foot back in it, it's not the same river because it's not the same water, and you're not the same person. Because we're constantly in flux. Things are constantly being born. They're constantly dying. Things are constantly moving. Things are constantly changing. And yet, the world doesn't fall apart. Why? That was his question. That was Heraclitus' question. Was, how, how do things move and seem malleable, and yet day and night is regulated? The four seasons are regulated. The tide, as capricious as it may seem, comes in and goes out, and there is this governing principle that somehow is holding it where it is. And what the, what the Greek concept was, what the Hellenistic concept was, is that this, this power, this force that's holding everything together is, this, is the logos. It's, this, it's unknowable, it's cold, it's mechanical, it's indifferent, and yet it's holding everything together somehow. It's just the governing principle that keeps everything harmonious. That was their concept. And John uses this term because he is inviting Jew and Gentile into hope. He opens up with the words, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God because he is inviting all people into hope. And now we'll start to speed up. This is what the Gospel of John is all about. If John was going to tell us why he wrote the Gospel of John and what it was for, this is what he would say. And he actually does say it in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And you guys know that I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I have to point out that the word life there, that you may have life in his name, is the Greek word zoe. That's eternal, eternal spiritual life, not physical life, not biological life. What John is saying is, I wrote the Gospel of John so that you would believe in Jesus and that in believing in him as Lord and King, as, as the Christ, that you would have eternal life in his name. That is the whole reason why John wrote the Gospel of John, and he, he starts with that, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we know, if we cheat a little bit, we know from other passages, from chapter 1, verse 14, it says, John writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is the Son of God. The Word is Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, the communication of God, God's revealed self. Hebrews chapter 1 says that long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Jesus is the clearest 
and most comprehensive and explicit communication to us of who God is. And he is the power that holds all things together. The Greek, the Greek conception, the logos, is this cold and indifferent power that holds everything together. It's this, it's this force. It's this governing principle. John says it's a person. And his name is Jesus. Jesus holds the cosmos together, and he is God in the flesh. When I, was, when I very first went through this, it was at Skate Church with a group of guys, and one of them, his name was Lucas. And Lucas, I believe he was from Colombia, and his English was his second language. And he was, he was getting... He was getting pretty good at English, but there was still some, some, some holes here and there. And as I was teaching this, he said, he said, let me get this straight. Jesus is God in our language. And I said, yes and amen. That's exactly right. That's the way of thinking about it. Jesus is God in a way that we can understand. We see him. We can touch him. He became a human being. This is who, this is who Jesus is. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus is God in the flesh. The word is the second person of the Trinity. In, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And so what John is doing is he's taking this hope that we have, the life that we have in Jesus, and he's connecting it in John 1. He says, in the beginning. And we're supposed to hear those words and, and it's clickbait. This is clickbait. We're supposed to read those words in the beginning and think, I've read... I've read that before. I've heard that before. Where have I read that before? John chapter 1 verse 1 takes us right back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Where it says that God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this is a beautiful thing because what, what John is doing is he's taking this hope that we have in Jesus and he's taking it all the way back to the very beginning of time. Past the time of the the, the intertestamental period, the time between the testaments, past the time of the Babylonian and Assyrian drama, past the time that before Israel was even one nation. He's going beyond that. Past the wars, past the upheaval. He's going past Abraham in general, period. He's going past Jacob and Esau. He's going past Adam and Eve. He's going even past land and animal and sea. He's saying, in the beginning... In the very beginning, the very first murmurs of creation, your hope existed. It doesn't, your hope does not rely on anything in the physical realm. It existed in the very beginning. And then he even ups the ante because he says, in the beginning was. In the beginning, when the beginning began, our hope was previously existing. The word already was. And this speaks to the eternality of the word. This speaks to the eternal nature of God. That God is not dependent on anything in creation. He created everything. And before we were even created, before space was, was created, before time was created, our hope existed in the person of Jesus Christ, who has existed eternally. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And this speaks to a distinction. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So that's, that's two. And we, it, you know, if we're just reading the text word for word, we don't, we don't exactly know yet what we're dealing with. But we have the word and we have, we have God. And it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So there's two distinct realities. They're individual and yet they're together in closest possible intimacy. And that speaks to relationship. The two are together for all of eternity. And that's what John's building up. There's a, there's a two, there's a duality of, 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 of reality here. There's, there's something going on that's, 
that's active. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And in case this, this makes us think that somehow the Word was other or separate from God, the next, the next line clears that up for us. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, and the Word, the word was God. This eternally existent Word of God who has been with God is himself God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is beyond our logic. We, we fail here because we can't completely comprehend this. There is God and there is the Word, and they're together, but the Word was God. Was God, always was God, always, always 100% full deity. And we can't completely comprehend that, but that is the truism that runs through the entire Bible, that God, this is what we believe, that God is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, your God is one. One God who exists in three persons. And we start, to, we start to see this activity come to life just right here in the very first words of the Gospel of John. And he's connecting it to our hope that goes all the way past eternity. God is one God who exists and three persons. We, we see this in Genesis 1 again. Remember the creation narrative? The Lord says, let us, let us make man and woman in our image. God is an our. God is plural. There's, there's three persons there. We believe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit create the Godhead. And, and there, there's, there's two things, there's two things that, that I need to point out here. As we, as we start heading towards my main point and, and the close. And that is that this, this portion of John, these, these first few words, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It's, it's, it's informative and it's intellectual. Uh, and it has a lot to do with, with thinking. It has a lot to do with, with wrapping our minds around what's happening here. And the other, the other thing is that there's an obvious component that's missing. There's a missing link. And it's the, that is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. Here we have God and we have the Word. And the Holy Spirit is not specifically mentioned here in the, in the first verses of John. And that's why I want to I take us further. We start in John and we have another portion of Scripture where this really comes to life. This is intellectual. This is head stuff. We're thinking about this. This is doctrine. But where, it, where we start to apprehend what really is going on here, I want to take us over to the book of Mark chapter 1. Because the uh, the the, the amount that we're able to apprehend this, this will melt our heart, hearts. This isn't just doctrine. I know this is sort of mechanical and cold sounding and it's these facts and it's doctrine and it can even be boring to some people. But this is the groundwork. But this groundwork means something. And it means something that is beautiful and powerful. It is our hope. It is good news for us. It's really good news for us. And I wanted, we had to start slow to kind of get to the good stuff. The good stuff, maybe the wrong way of putting it, but where this is fleshed out, where we see this, we see this triune God interworking and, and, and acting out family and community and beauty is in Mark chapter 1. <clears throat> in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Jesus is baptized. He's dunked under the water. He's, he's pulled up out of the water. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove and then the heavens were ripped open and the voice of Father God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. 
And even that would be easy to read over. How many times have we heard that story? Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But we have to stop. We have to stop there because this, I'll tell you, losing my dad, my dad died in my arms. Losing my father that way, this, this was the joy that I had in that moment. Digging underneath the surface of this, of this event in Jesus' life and, and, and piecing out the implications and the ripple effect of this is the hope that I have. It's the hope that we have. It's the hope that my dad had. What we see here in Jesus' baptism in the presence of the Spirit and the voice of the Father is a sneak peek at what's been happening inside of the triune Godhead for all of eternity. What John is saying in John 1, there was the Word and the Word was with God. This is what it looked like. And what do we see? We see community. We see three persons who are evolving, they're revolving around each other. Jesus is glorifying the Father in obedience. The Father is glorifying the Son with praise. The Holy Spirit is glorifying Jesus with his presence. And Jesus is honoring the Holy Spirit by living in in, in intimacy and obedience with the Holy Spirit throughout his entire life, throughout the entire eternity. The three people here are, are revolved around each other. Look at how active it is. Jesus is being baptized. The Holy Spirit is descending. The Father God is speaking. This is a sneak peek of the love and of the enjoyment of company that the, eternity, that the eternal God has been experiencing for all of existence, for all of eternity. For all of eternity, this is what's been happening. We get a sneak peek of it. It's very quick. It's very brief. But it's beautiful right here in Mark chapter 1. We're being let in on something that's absolutely beautiful. This is what you could call community. This is what you could call family. Persons engaged with one another, deferring to one another, loving one another, honoring one another, deferring to the other, uplifting the other, encouraging the other. And if this is true, then what that means is that the the truth behind the entire cosmos, the most fundamental reality of all existence. Think about this. If God is a tri, this is why it's important. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. If the triune God, if our God is three persons in one God, it means that the entire cosmos, the truth behind it is a relationship of love that never dies. And you think about that when you lose a loved one. The greatest truth behind the entire cosmos is a relationship of love that does not die. And if that's true, then it means that the point of life is relationships that do not die. And isn't that what Jesus came to achieve? We were created by this God who's been living in joy and in community and love for all of eternity out of an expression of that love, out of an expression of that community, to be a part of it. And we were. Everything was good in the Garden of Eden. The only thing that God said was bad is, or that it was not good is that it's not good that man should be alone. And he created women. And that's cool. That's real cool. Things were good. And it was our sin that ruined it. It was our sin that ruined that relationship. It was mutiny against the family. It was mutiny against God. I'll do my own thing. I don't need you. I don't want to listen to you. And it broke the relationship. And God is so righteous and so holy that he had to cut us off. 
And we were out of that relationship. And that, out of that relationship, that's hell. That's death. That for eternity is hell. Separation from love, separation from that family, separation from the God that we were, that we were created to be with. That's the, that, is, that is the ramifications of our sin, that death. And Jesus came to restore that. He came to, to pay the price of our sins to give us his righteousness so that we could reestablish that relationship. Jesus in John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. The, the, the scene, the context there, it's the night that Jesus is handed over to the authorities just before his torture and his crucifixion. And he's praying to Father God. And he's, he's, he's amongst his disciples. And he says, this is, this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That they would know you. That they would know you. Not earn it. Not achieve it. Not get badges of merit. But that they would know and that word know in the Bible means, it doesn't mean head knowledge that we download and agree with because the devil can do that, but to intimately be in communal relationship with, that they would know you. This is eternal life. It's relationship again with our Father God and with each other. If God is triune and he is, if the, what the Bible says is true and it is, the greatest reality of the entire cosmos is a relationship of love that does not die. And when we're really honest with ourselves, we want that. We want that. When I was holding my dad's hand as he was taking his last breaths, I wanted this. I wanted this to be true more than I had ever wanted it to be true before. And that's why I, I you know, these truths, they, they sometimes they move one section at a time. And for me, I knew this was true. You know, I believe, I'm a pastor. I believe the Bible. I believe that it's the infallible word of God. But whenever I actually held my dad as he died, this became so much more true to me. So much more real. And I don't, I don't tell people this because I, I, you know, I just, I'm not a newspaper. But 10 days before my dad died, one of my best friends died in Texas of substance abuse overdose. Same guy, we had, we were, we were, we had bro tats. We had the same tattoos. He died, 36 years old. And he had his problems, but the man was a believer. He loved the Lord. And he, he went back. He went to be with the Lord. He went to be with his family. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. C.S. Lewis always says everything better than Everybody else can, especially me. He says this about the, speaking of the Trinity, he says this. He says, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And we see this dance. Jesus is baptized and the spirit comes to be with him and the father declares, well done, you are my son. I am, I am pleased with you. How many of us long to hear that? How many of us haven't heard that? This is how good the Father is. And this is how that family is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity loving one another. Love that does not die. Love that does not grow old. Love that does not fade. Love that we never have to say goodbye to. Love that we never have to bury. I went to my dad's grave yesterday. And it was so weird. 
Has anybody experienced that? You know, the day that my dad died, <laughs> this is just, I'm just sharing with you because I'm a pastor and I want to just like spill my guts to you guys because I want to I wanna know you and that starts with somebody being vulnerable and we do that with our words. When my dad died, the morning, the morning that he died, I, I went, went back to the house, my, my parents' house and when you walk into my parents' house, there's a stairway that goes immediately straight up and then there's a sharp right-hand turn and my wife and I would go over there every single Tuesday for dinner, every single Tuesday. And I would take that right-hand turn, and there was this one spot. It was funny because my dad actually never, ever sat down. But when he knew we were coming over for dinner, he, he would just chill in this one spot on this couch. And I would take that right-hand turn, and he was always right there. He was always right there. I'd walk up the stairs, turn the right-hand corner, and there was my dad. And the morning that he died, I, I walked up the stairs, and I, I took that right-hand turn. And he wasn't there. His shoes were there, and I just broke down crying. This is love that we never have to bury. And you know, this is, this is the hope. This is the hope. Love that does not die. John says, chapter 20, I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he takes that life all the way to before time began in the very first words of his gospel. Our hope is so secure our hope is so sure, our hope is so dependable, it's beyond creation. It's outside of time, it's outside of earth, it's outside of humanity, which means that nothing on earth, nothing in time, and nothing in humanity can, can stop our hope. Nothing can affect our hope, nothing can dilute it, nothing can hurt it, nothing can weaken it. It's not dependent on earth, and everything on earth fails but not our hope. Our hope is beyond earth. It's beyond here and now. Guys, this is our hope. And we have it because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And his perfect sinless life of righteousness is the free gift. That is the salvation that he offers to those who put their hope and their faith and their trust in him as their, as their Lord and Savior. So that we will experience death here on earth. Yep. Yes, we will. But we have this hope. And I'll share just this one last thing and then I'll close. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced this before. My, my dad, he, he died of cancer and, and it was awful. You know, he was so active. He, he, he exercised, he climbed mountains, he backpacked. He made everything with his hands. Everything from leather purses to like a transmission for a Ford pickup. Everything. He built computers. He built everything. In the last nine months of his life, he couldn't hardly do anything at all. His body got eaten up inch by inch. But he never got cynical. He never got mad. He never, he never uttered a word of swearing or of cursing. And the light in his eyes never diminished. His hope never diminished. And it didn't dawn on me until the day that he died that what I had been witnessing and what my wife had been witnessing and what mom had been witnessing those last months of his life was the embodiment of worship. Everything in his life, he couldn't work anymore. He couldn't eat anymore. He was on a feeding tube. But he loved and he trusted his king. He trusted this hope that is beyond the physical, beyond time. And he was full of joy even as his body deteriorated. And the Bible says that. It says that our outer person is wasting away, but our inner person is being renewed day by day. And that, that worship, that trust, that, 
that hope in our Lord, that family, that dance that he was about to enter, he knew it. You know the hymn that says, the hymn that says, the things of earth grow strangely dim. When you experience this, it does feel strange. Because I feel like I should be more emotionally torn up by my father's loss. I feel like my mom should be more emotionally torn up. I feel like my wife should be more emotionally torn up. And we are. It's okay to hurt as Christians. Don't get me wrong. It is okay to hurt as Christians. But we do not mourn as those who have no hope. The things of earth grow strangely dim. And we have a, this, this new hope inside of us. Dad's in heaven. He's eating all the foods that he couldn't enjoy here. And he's enjoying them in perfection. He's making all of the things his hands couldn't make and he's making them in perfection. He's got a new body. And that causes us to be stoked and to worship the Jesus who made that possible. And we know that we're gonna be right behind him here pretty soon, one by one. This is a hope that says death does not win. This is a hope that says death actually loses. The Bible says that death is devoured by the cross. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. Let us go to our king in worship and in praise because he has achieved this for us. It's not of our own doing. It's a free gift of salvation. And we enter into this family forever with our Lord and with each other. That is a reason to be stoked on Jesus. That is a reason to worship. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Guys, I love you. Uh, it's I am so tired. I don't know how, I don't have a timer or anything. I don't know where I'm at. But let me close out with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll, get, we'll get the band coming on up here. And uh, it's only 1030. Did I only talk for a half an hour? Are you lying? All right, let me close in a word of prayer as the band comes up. Jesus, thank you for your victory. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your, your tenacious pursuit of us. Thank you that your word engages not only our mind, but also our heart, and that the two of those are actually very much connected. Lord, we trust you with all things. Thank you that death does not win. Thank you that loss and suffering and hurt is not final. And thank you that even in the times and the places when we suffer and we hurt and we experience great loss and grief, your joy and your peace is alive in those places, Lord. Your hand is not short. You know how many hairs are on our head and you also hold the world suspended in outer space. Lord, you are powerful and yet you are kind and you are near. You are the God who ignites the sun and you weave us together in our mother's womb. Thank you. Thank you for that powerful love. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you that we have so much to look forward to. And I pray, Lord, that anyone here who might be hurting, anyone here who might be lost, that you would, you would call them by the power of your spirit and that they would, they would cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, save me. And that salvation would be had in this building today. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.